0: Episode of rising tide and the purpose of rising tide is to educate heal and empower by bringing on the world's most brilliant minds and pure souls uh so right now definitely got another rising tide mr tj tenet uh met his brother when i was in nashville tennessee working the auto show probably i want to say around two years ago this time maybe a month from now will be two years because i think it was october yeah yep. and uh when we met, I was working for Toyota, doing brand ambassadoring, and I was trying to get him to look at this Toyota uh, tent that we were doing, and he was like, oh, man, I only, you know, drive European whips. I don't I don't mess with anything <laughs> else. And I was like, oh, man, this guy, whatever, like, oh, yeah. And so he went inside, uh, looked at all the cars, and then when he came back outside, uh, I can't remember what he said to me, but we spoke, we stopped and had a conversation. Then he started showing me pictures of all the cars that he actually owns and then he's drawn and then he drives. And I was like, Oh, okay. So you're not just talking. You really, you, you really need uh, what you're saying. And from there we formed a relationship. Uh, we've been able to speak many times over the years. And every time we get on the phone, he's always just adding so much value. He's always uh, opening my mind to different ways to earn money and not even just earn money, but to earn money on like, a high level, whether it's speaking, whether it's stuff you can do with a book, he'll just break down so many different th- ways that you can make money off of that and it'll total <laughs> up to like 50, 60,000. And you'd be like, dang, I'm a one project. So man, um, <laughs> definitely appreciate you coming on the podcast, Mr. Tennant. Uh, let's just start with a little bit about telling just the people who you
1: are and what it is that you do. Uh, well, my name's TJ Tennant. Uh, I was formerly uh, the chief engineer at Bridgestone Firestone. I uh, started out there when, during the Ford Firestone recall, and that's kind of where I honed my, my legal teeth, I guess, my engineering legal teeth. Uh, and I would fly around to wherever there was a vehicle that rolled over. And my job was to work with the accident investigator, try to determine what happened, basically who's to blame. And if Bridgestone Firewall, Firestone was to blame, how should we move forward should we settle should we try to fight it uh so i was the technical expert for a lot of that stuff and and learned a lot about uh tires and why they failed and even accident investigation and even how to work cordially with law enforcement uh so uh, i retired from bridgestone a couple of years ago and it was kind of funny i now run a tenant tenant it's actually the tenant group And the tenant group is three entities. The tenant group is composed of tenant properties, tenant and associates, and the tire guy. (laughs) And tenant properties is uh, the properties that my wife and I own. And they are comprised of what we call retail, which are houses that we bought and we rent out. And also commercial properties, which would be like office buildings and stuff like that geared toward uh medical uh specialists and tenant and associates actually is the legal expert side they testify in court as expert witnesses whenever there's a tire failure uh and tires fail for three reasons basically either it's workmanship or material meaning it happened at the factory that's really really rare uh, that's like the golden ticket in Willy Wonka, <laughs> and then, and then there's, uh, in service use, which means they failed because the air pressure wasn't checked. They didn't rotate them or a mechanical issue with the vehicle. And then finally, uh, basically is a road hazard. And then last but not least is the tire guy, which works in parallel with tenant and associates. And those guys go around, they train law enforcement and tire forensics they work with fleets to help them limit liability they work with insurance companies to train their claims agents on anything tire related whether it's motorcycle passenger light truck commercial ag off the road mining pretty much you name it and we are a global company we traveled well before the coronavirus hit <laughs> we yeah. traveled all over the world and uh, advised Uh, either people in the law enforcement industry, the crash reconstruction industry, uh, for the most part, and uh, just advise and consult with them globally.
0: But you were also saying uh, last time we spoke that the coronavirus didn't even slow uh, that up or whatever, because y'all been able to pivot and handle things virtually, right?
1: Right, what we had to do, and in business you have to be versatile, and that was part of our conversation, you have to be able to adjust for what's going on in the business world. And uh, I look at business uh, as far as profitability, say if I'm looking at my business today, trying to see what we need to focus on, that vision of my business is just a snapshot in time. So I'm looking at it today and I'm determining what the marketplace requires today and how we can accommodate the marketplace with the best service that we possibly can. But simultaneously, we are all uh, also looking at the future and trying to determine what changes would happen in the future, how they would affect us from a financial state and how we can adjust to either minimize or maximize uh, that fi- our financial process to make sure we're still profitable. But in addition to that, we also provide the best services and goods that we possibly can. And my dad had a a phrase when I was growing up and down in Zachary, Louisiana, which is just north of Baton Rouge. And uh, he used to always say, TJ, you need to be the obvious choice. And I never really thought about what that meant, but he said it all the time. And then one day I was working at a sonic drive-in and a system manager's job came up and uh, I wanted the job, but so did another kid want the job. And I didn't get it. And I assumed that I didn't get it because I was African-American. And I went home and I told my dad. Dad said, you know, well, how'd it come out? I said, well, I didn't get it. And my father said, well, why didn't you get it? I said, well, they chose the other kid that was white. And I looked at my dad and my dad was very cerebral. He thought about everything, which kind of ticked me off a lot because he wouldn't answer your questions right away. He basically crosses hands and, and, you know, put his hands up like that because he's thinking about it. And I'm like, well, Dad, did you hear me? And he goes, yeah, I heard you. And I said, so what do you think? And he said, well, TJ, were you the obvious choice? And, And, you know, I had heard him say that. I'm like, what do you mean, Dad? And he says, were you so good at the goods and the services that you provided that they had to choose you or the business would lose money? And I said, well, no, me and the other kid was about tit for tat. He said, I'm not done. (laughs) I said, okay. (laughs) And he said, were you also the most knowledgeable about your competitors' goods and services? And I said, well, no. And my dad said, well, you can never come to me with race as an excuse again. And so I was kind of ticked off. I'm like, I'm your son. You ain't backing me up, man. You know, come on. (laughs) So. Uh, He came back to me later that day and he said, TJ, um, you have to be so good to be the obvious choice that anytime a conversation comes up in your field of expertise, your name should come up. They should automatically think about you because they want the best. And when they want the best and you are considered the obvious choice, it takes race, religion, sexual orientation. It takes all of that out of the equation because ultimately the final call is going to be determined by who can assist them to make that dollar bill and if you can't help them make that dollar well you ain't the obvious choice and you also cannot ask for a premium rate whether it's in salary or consultation fees or whatever so we are very heavy in in the philosophy of being the obvious choice And our company our company mission basically or not mission, but statement is God family and then tenant associates. So if Mm -hmm. one of my guys is sick or his wife's having a baby, whatever that takes priority working with us is last, you know, God first, then your family. And then your job. And I think if more companies looked at their employees as not just an asset, but an extended member of your family, which is how I look at my guys, they're my brothers as far as I'm concerned, and I treat them as such. They feel a lot more comfortable about working for you. And I don't micromanage. I do not They don't have to call me and say, hey, you know, can we buy this? We need that. I don't have time for that. I hired you for a certain skill that you have. I need you to employ those skills for the outcome that we're both looking for. And when you do it that way, everybody's happy. Not only that, the employees are very, very happy when they don't have to call. They can make their own decisions so they feel like they're not only a part of the company, but they're also a part of the process.
0: No, that's a That's brilliant, man. And that really just says a lot about the culture uh, that you create at your company. That's probably why people go so hard, because a lot of times when you're working at a job, you don't never get the sense that you can place your family as priority over your job. Like They don't give you that thought. They don't give you that feeling at all. They be like, oh, you can't come to work? Uh, well, uh, either call in six and you're going to get paid or we're going to have to you know, figure something else out and maybe this job isn't for you. And so, man, that says a lot. What uh made you
1: actually want to take care of your people that way? Yeah, you know, I was I, I worked at a corporate environment, and I was a manager at that corporate level for the world's largest tire and rubber company. And I I saw how the employees there were being treated by senior management, and they were being treated, in, in a lot of cases, like second-class citizens. Uh, so the people who cleaned the floors and emptied my, dra- my trash can and stuff, I went out of my way to treat them like kings and queens. And if nothing else, just to say hello, get to know them, learn what their name was, learn if they had a family, you know, I'd, I'd ask them, hey, you know, your daughter starts school. And just to let them know that I cared about them and they were an important factor in the holistic view of how that company operated. And so when I saw some of the employees being treated like second class citizens and indirectly being told you're not either at a high enough level or important enough to know certain things, I thought, wow, that is is that that is not a cool way of, of, of attracting talent or keeping talent or making someone happy in their job. Uh, So when I started my own company, I I thought all the training that I went through, they taught me, they sent me through all this executive management training. I mean, every, seems like every few months I was going through some type of management training or something. And the joke that we have right now is, I mean, they spent several hundred thousand, maybe even millions of dollars training me. So I I take everything that they trained me on and all the money that they used to train me and I do the opposite of what they taught me. <laughs> <laughs> so when they're teaching me to focus on money and bottom line profit, and basically that's all we need to focus on and everything else is secondary, I think you can't be profitable without the people who are helping you be profitable, period. Yeah. And so I share with them not only in the profitability, but in the statements of, hey, you know, that was a great job. You killed it on that. And allowing them to make mistakes. So with most companies, they'll tell you if you're, you know, even if you're a new employee, hey, don't mess this up. Okay. My philosophy is no, no. Uh, uh-uh. I want you to mess it up. I mean, I don't want to run a customer off, but I want you to mess it up so that you remember it. And the more you mess up now, the less you're going to mess up later. So that is a philosophy and, and it takes an employee a while to get used to my style because it is so different than everything that they've ever experienced. You know, I just asked them, hey, let me know that you screwed up. So if I need to get involved, we can fix it. But they no employee comes to work thinking. I think I'm going to mess up some stuff today. I I want to Just, just, just destroy as much as I possibly No Employee thinks that every employee comes to work initially until you beat that out of them. They think, man, I got me a new job. I want to try to do a good job. I want to learn how to do this job. I want the opportunity to get promoted. That's what everyone comes into a new job thinking initially. After the first year, after they've been beat up and told, don't screw this up, or you messed it up on your performance review, they don't guide you through the whole process and and talk with you daily, or if you need some guidance, they don't guide you then. They wait until you're ready to do your performance review, and then they ding you. And I'm like, why'd you wait six months to tell me this? Why didn't you (laughs) tell me this when it happened, and I could have fixed it? but you wait six months and then I don't get the raise that I should have gotten. That is not a good way of doing business, in my opinion. A good way of doing business is to have daily conversations with your employees, getting to know them, allowing them to get to know you so that they're comfortable disagreeing with you. If you're a manager and you never have an employee disagree with you, that's a problem with the manager that means you are too overbearing. If they're comfortable enough to disagree and explain to you why they differ from your opinion, almost in every case that that has happened to me, uh, those employees had a better idea than I had. And I I allow them, they can talk to me however they want. They can cuss and holler, they can talk, we can go have dinner whatever they're comfortable doing, I will. I allow them the freedom to do that. And it's not personal. And i found that if a, an employee comes to me and they're like, what the crap, man? You know, that means they're passionate about what's going on and they want the company to do better. If they just walk in there, hey, TJ, can I talk? None of mine come in like that. But if they How did, did you
0: actually remove your ego from the situation? Because I was reading- I think it was the autobiography of Steve Jobs, and they was talking about um, the culture we're creating. We're only hiring A players, and so it's like A players, B players, and C players. A players only want to work with A players. People that operate on the highest level only want to operate on the highest level. But B players typically only want to hire C players because their ego always gets in the way. They will never hire A player because they don't want to lose their job or they don't want to be outshined. So a lot of times, ego comes in the way uh, when you're being managed by someone. So how is it like, how has your ego, you've been able to control it or just like get it out the way so you don't mind people just freely expressing themselves? You don't mind having someone who is very great at what they do be around you without feeling like insecure or they're gonna outshine you? How did How did you get like that?
1: Uh, man, that's a hard question. I, I don't know when I started being that way. I know I have been that way for probably the past 20 years. And uh, and, and that involves being me being a Christian. And I like to call myself a Christian in practice because I still screw it up really bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so I'm like still that practicing that to trying to perfect it. Uh, but being a Christian, and, and like I said, I still make big, big, crazy errors in that practice. Uh, I handle them the way I think about me and how they see me through their eyes. In other words, how do my how do I think my employees see me, and how do they really see me? And that could be two different things. And I have to ask them. You know, how comfortable and communication. I think is the biggest way. In all in all honesty, asking them, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, uh, am I? How, You know, am I, am I being a good leader literally and being strong enough for them to be able to be honest with me and say, you're a good leader, but sometimes you, you do this and you may not even realize you're doing that. And that allows me to be even better. As far as somebody outshining me, I I want all the people who work with me. I don't want to say for me because they work with me. I want all of them to outshine me. I I want them to be better than me in every case, and we learn together as a group. Um, If we're working on a a big lawsuit with a big firm, that's almost a team effort, a group effort. Otherwise, if it's a small issue, they're going to handle it, usually in teams of two people, uh, and everyone gets along. And I think one of the biggest things I learned in the corporate environment is Don't hire based on their resume or their grades or where they came from. I hire based on passion. Mm. If I can get a person in who is passionate about what we do, I can train them because no matter who they are, you're going to have to train them anyway. I don't care how much education they've got, how smart that you've got to train them. But if they're passionate about coming in and you can see that passion, Oh man, that's a win. I mean, I can bring in somebody who was digging ditches and teach them engineering stuff, that's no problem. I can show anybody how to make money, that's no problem. But when you make that money, how good is your character? Are you gonna stay humble? Or are you gonna just rub it in people's faces or anything? You know, uh, Danny and I, one of my employees, we were teaching actually a tire forensics class yesterday. And uh, we both own Ferraris and we were in there talking about how, how much the maintenance costs on, on Ferraris. and We have to ship them to Atlanta from Nashville. And, uh, you know, he was saying he just shipped and we didn't realize we were talking out in the open where people could hear us because we don't <laughs> normally do that. But, you know, he was saying, you know, he had some some work done on his. It was $10,000. I said, well, wow, I I wish I could have spent that much. I just spent 15 grand on mine for some work. And one of the guys that was sitting in there was, but they had some people sitting there. We didn't even realize they had come back into the room and uh, they asked if, you know, yeah, you guys own Ferraris, And I was like, yeah. And it was interesting because his response was you guys don't look like Ferrari owners. And I said, and I was kind of curious about what he said. And I said, well, what does a Ferrari owner look like? <laughs> yeah. And he says, you know, normally I would have thought that they're snooty and, you know, they think they're better than anybody else. He said, you guys don't give that impression at all. And I said, well, yeah, good. I don't want to give that impression. I said, to be honest with you, The Ferrari owners and the Lamborghini owners that I know and associate with inside of my closed circle are actually really, really nice guys. You know, they they drive their cars and they have flip flops and shorts and a T-shirt on. You don't see them wearing a Rolex and, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 suit. That's not who they are. All of them worked for a living and all of them worked really hard to get to where they are. And uh, they're not trying to impress anybody because they've already gotten where they want to be financially and usually socially. So but to answer your question, you have to be first be humble in who you are and be willing to accept criticism from everyone and not only accept the criticism actively pursue criticism. Hmm. Because you may think you're great. But when other people see you, they might like, oh, man, I can't stand that guy. And if you don't know they feel that way, you can't fix it. And if you're so, so much an A-type personality that you're going to get angry when they say that, then everyone's going to shut down and no one's, no one's going to say anything to you about that and you will never grow. You will never get better.
0: Hmm. No, that's definitely powerful. So another thing that I want to ask you is what actually gave you the courage or the belief that you could. Step out on your own because, you, like you said, you were operating at like the vice president level of yeah. a major corporation, and then to step out on that and to go all in on your own, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors. What was that process like? And did you have to, you know, was it a period of time where you didn't believe, so you had to get yourself ready before you actually left your job, or did you just
1: just make a decision one day and just didn't turn back? Uh, wow, that's another good question, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, I, I got to give my wife the credit for that. We've been married now 19 years, and she has always believed in me and believed that I could accomplish whatever my goals were. I and mean, She and I have open communication with each other. There are no lies. There are no secrets. We talk to each other, and uh, and she was the one who actually instigated that. And uh, I was working on this huge project at Bridgestone. It's like a $600 million deal. And, uh, and they had sent our attorneys out and field engineer salespeople. They, they picked all of their A-level people to try to resolve it until finally they came to me and said, hey, just can you go work your magic? And uh, I said, oh man, I, I guess, you know, and I said, okay, well, yeah, whatever. So I go out there and then within two hours, I had everything that I needed to fix the problem. And within a week, the problem was resolved. The customer was happy. The customer stayed on our product. Uh, the customer thought that you know Bridgestone Firestone was the greatest company ever. And when I got back, of course, I had meetings with high level people and, and basically they said, good job and thank you. So I get home and I didn't think anything about it. I felt like it was just my job, but I did save the company $600 million, which ain't no chicken feed. Yeah. And my wife said, So what are they going to do for you? And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean? She said, They're not going to give you a percentage. They're not going to give you a bonus or anything. I said, You know what? They didn't, they didn't mention it. She said, That's it. You're out of there. You're going to stop making money for them and you're going to start bringing that money home. And I was like, uh, okay, we're going, I need you to define what that means. <laughs> and she's like, well, you know, you've been talking about starting your own business. You need to start it. I said, okay, I uh, went back to, to work the next day, gave them my six month notice. And they actually didn't think I was leaving because my, my salary there was way up in six figures. And of course I had all the perks and bonuses and all that stuff. And uh, about two weeks before I was leaving, they had another big project, like the one that I had completed five and a half months earlier. And they said, hey, can you work your magic on this as well? And I said, no, I'm going to be gone in six weeks. And they said, I mean, in two weeks. And they said, what? I said, yeah, I did all my paperwork. Obviously, y'all didn't read the emails, because I sent (laughs) a goodbye and thank you email. And they said we thought you were kidding. And I said, "Have you ever known me to kid about something like that?" <laughs> so uh, when I left Bridgestone, uh, the the people that I worked with outside of Bridgestone, actually Bridgestone clients, called me and said, "Hey, we heard you retired from Bridgestone." And I said, "Yeah, I said I'm doing my own thing. I'm gonna." And we already had tenant properties. You know, we'd already been buying and managing properties because I believe in multiple streams of income. And also in you using the company that you work for because they're using you whether you want to believe it or not they're using you to get what they want. I use them and I, mean, I had to use use, but I use my pension and not my pension, but my bonus and my salary for us to start buying homes and renting them and stuff like that. So, so those
0: was like your first uh, stream of income outside of Bridgestone and all the, that the while real you estate, were working at yeah. Bridgestone was doing real. Okay, how long were you doing real estate before you had left
1: Bridgestone? Uh, we started it in 2008 and that's when we started real estate and we, and it was interesting because in 2007, we were living in an apartment. Uh, my wife and I, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, we were, I was, I was starting to make good money and move up the corporate ladder. So we weren't, we weren't broke by no means, but, uh, I, I, wanted i started thinking about what happens if i leave bridgestone or bridgestone closes down or i get mad and leave or they fire me then my family uh, has no income other than my wife's salary and uh i said uh, that ain't gonna work i want to have not only multiple streams of income but i want to have enough secondary income so that uh i don't have to bite my tongue at bridgestone and that's where a lot of employees get into trouble because while the whole time I was there the other executives the other managers the other high level people wanted me to move into this area of Nashville that's very very expensive and the homes there are expensive they don't have much of a yard but they just wanted the privilege of being able to say I live in this zip code and that's where a lot of Americans make um, big crazy mistakes they move into a house and they're paying five, $10,000 a month in a mortgage and their salaries, 13,000. And so they're living in this really nice house. And in a lot of cases, they didn't have any furniture. And in a lot of cases, they didn't have curtains. And then they say, well, I, I'm an executive. So I'm supposed to be driving a Mercedes or, you know, BMW or, you know, something like that, a Tesla. Then they get the car and they're playing the role but they're just playing. They're not living the role, they're playing the role. Until ultimately, like now with the coronavirus, Bridgestone starts laying people off and cutting back on bonuses and everyone's in trouble that did that. Where uh, I was able to leave and I I wasn't even eligible for my pension when I left yet. So Mm -hmm. I didn't get my pension until months, literally months after I left, And started my own company because I never had that mindset that I have to show out or drive a certain car or live in a certain neighborhood. My philosophy is I want to be happy wherever it is that I am with what I have. And if I'm able to achieve more. That's fine. But I'm not going to buy a car that I think other people think I should have. I'm going to buy a car or a house that my wife and I like, (laughs) and it doesn't matter. So did you
0: have your Ferrari or one of your uh, nice luxurious cars before you had left um, Bridgestone or did that come after on your entrepreneur endeavors?
1: I, I, yeah, I had the Ferrari, but we were already kind of moving financially then because we had the, the property, real estate was doing really, really well. And then you were earning a nice salary too. I had a freaking awesome salary there. And, uh, when I left, uh, some of the, the clients at Bridgestone had called me and said, well, we heard you left. And I said, yeah, and actually Tennessee state patrol was one. And they said, Hey, uh, you ever thought about being an expert witness? And I said, no, not really. And they said, you probably do really well doing that. And I had a mentor that was already doing that. And he was doing really, really well. He said, TJ, no one has ever heard of some of the information that you teach. And he said, people would be willing to pay for it. Attorneys would be willing to hire you. And it worked out to where, so well, that the word, when the word really got out that I had left and I was uh, a freelance contractor, so to speak, that people, my phone started to ring. And it was kind of amazing because every time it would ring, I would say, well, how did you find me? Because I don't advertise or anything. And even to this day, they say, oh, you were referred. And to this day, we operate on 100% referral. We do absolute zero, zero marketing, zero advertising, and we literally have to turn business down. As a matter of fact, when you sent me the text today, uh, there was an attorney contacting me from Oklahoma on a commercial vehicle that had rolled over and I was examining some of the, the preemptive material to determine if we were gonna take the case. And, and, and I got to be honest, that is a good position to be in when people are calling you and they're willing to pay you tens of thousands or even sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you're going to tell them, nah, I'm not going to take your case. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and, and this is why uh, That's the opposite of what people like you and me and people watching this pod this video cast or taught in school. They're taught, hey, when that money's you know waving in front of you, you need to go after it and grab it. Or you need to get a job working for somebody else, let them make all the money and you be happy with a six-figure salary. Well, no, I ain't happy with a six-figure salary. I'm not disappointed with it, but I ain't <laughs> happy with it. <laughs> Especially yeah. when I know more is out there. So for me, that being the obvious choice thing that we talked about earlier, flows through every single day by people saying, if an attorney calls an accident reconstructionist or uh, uh, a state trooper in some state, or even if it's another country, Australia, if it's someone in uh, France or Germany or Great Britain, and they say, hey, do you know a tire expert? and 100 percent of the time they say oh yeah there's that guy down in nashville his name's tj that's you should call him and that's that's how it works out for us or if it's an insurance company hey we already hired a tire expert but uh, we were told we probably should have got you can we consult and pay you on the side to make sure he's in alignment with where he should be (laughs) so uh that that being the obvious choice flows through and Even the services that we provide, most experts and consultants charge attorneys for phone time. If you call them on the phone, even if you hire an attorney, you call an attorney, they're going to charge you for being on the phone. We don't charge for that. You can call us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You can call me midnight on Christmas day if you want, and I'm going to talk to you. And that does happen because we're global. and it's daytime in other countries and nighttime here and they may call but we don't charge because when we're on the phone with a client it is imperative that they are listening to our guidance and our instruction and what we're trying to tell them we need to do instead of watching the clock and we found that if we charge for that phone time they're watching the clock they're like hey man you know am i getting billed for this so we don't do that and that's something that no other uh consultant expert witness etc none nobody else does that and i was shocked that they didn't do that because i'm not worried about being on the phone 30 minutes and bill i don't want to waste my time trying to bill somebody for 30 minutes or an hour that's bull crap man what i want to do is get them to do what I need them to do, and we can make that money up somewhere else. And the client's happy because the client's like, oh, man, I was on the phone with, you know, TJ or one of the associates for an hour, two hours, and they didn't bill me. Also, with with the coronavirus and things like this, people don't have a lot of money, even big firms right now. So we offer them other options instead of an hourly rate because it is ungodly expensive to have to hire someone like us we offer them uh payment plans we offer them if it's a big lawsuit where uh they are they've got you know a class action lawsuit or something like that we'll say hey i tell you what instead of doing the hourly thing which can be expensive why don't we take a percentage and you just pay for our travel I'll pay my guys for everything else. And if you lose the lawsuit, guess what? You don't have to pay us anything. If we win a lawsuit, we get a percentage of, of that gross. And the only expenses you had up front were, were paying for my guys to travel or in the hotel or if they need to do an on-site analysis or something. That's How often all do you get percentages for clients that you take? We negotiate that with each client. And uh, it, right now, more than than not, because you know nobody's got a whole lot of money or mo- upfront money. They, you know, of course, they've got to, they got to pay the uh, retainer fee, and we even negotiate the retainer fee if we need to with them. If they can't afford, you know, ten or twenty thousand dollar retainer, we may negotiate that and say, okay, I will tell you what, zero retainer and uh, we'll do a percentage of the class action lawsuit and you just pay for our travel room and board uh, and that kind of thing, no hourly rate. So with each client, the client determines what fits their ability to pay the best. Mm -hmm. And we work with them on that. No other experts do that kind of stuff. And I'm shocked that they don't do it. And you asked about what we do differently with the coronavirus, those are the things that you have to do to stay in business. Right now, that is my snapshot in time for the tenant group and how we're going to do business with our clients after the coronavirus and the money's flowing. We may continue that process. We may change it. We may opt out for something else to make sure that our clients feel comfortable with the services that we provided so that now we get, um, that client will come back to us again, as they always do, but they will also, cause attorneys talk, say, Hey, you know, those guys in Nashville, not only did they win the case and we didn't even have to go to court. They settled after they did a report because the report was so good, but you need to try them as well. And so, uh, when you get a, referrals at the level that we get them, I, I can't think of a single firm or attorney, or an insurance company that even asked what we—they don't even ask what we charge, <laughs> which is shocking because we're not cheap. <laughs> they just think. know your results. They know the result. Yeah, they, they I mean, as as a matter of fact, the Reconstructionists and the law enforcement people are so adamant about uh, a potential attorney that they're partnering with using us that sometimes they even say, "If you're not going to get them, I, I don't even want to work on the case." Wow, and that that is like, the and this wasn't coming from the guy, the people who said that this came from the attorneys, they said, if we didn't get you, they didn't even want to work on the case. And I'm like, do you want to get me or you want to get one of the associates because if you get me the money goes up really high, you can get the associates it's still high, but not as high. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the biggest compliment in business that I think I could ever get for the rest of my life for someone to say, if you don't get these guys and that 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 we don't even want to work with with anyone else or you if you don't get these guys and that is the epiphany and the the bitter definition of what my father meant when i was growing up by being the obvious choice so let me
0: ask you from when you had left bridgestone until you got your first client uh on your own how how much time had passed
1: Twenty-four hours wow yeah 24 hours because people were waiting for me to retire (laughs) they said hey when you retire man let us know i said everybody will know this is my retirement date six months from now on and i retired on april fool's day (laughs) wow so during
0: those six months were you like uh still working outside of your work hours on like building a business or spreading awareness or building a client base
1: I I only sleep a couple of hours a day. And if you ever get to meet my wife, Chris, I I am kind of a weird guy. We have a calculator in every room of the house, including the bathroom. So even when I'm doing number two, I got a calculator in my hand, (laughs) calculating (laughs) something. (laughs) And and so uh, they knew I would be retired on April Fool's Day. And uh, some of them were just waiting. Some of those that had cases that they could hold off until then said, we're just gonna wait until this guy is available. And I was by myself then, so I was all over the place. And at the same time, uh, I had people calling, wanting to do training, forensics training, or even certification training for emergency vehicle technician. I mean, I was all over the place. And uh, in some cases, for the training, we may do for free if we see there's an opportunity to grow our business. And I'll give you an example. Once I was called to do a a tire forensics class, and we work a lot with uh, law enforcement. We work a lot with uh, accident reconstructionists. We work a lot with attorneys. And that was what, those were the people that were going to be in this class, and it was like 100 of them. So I know that once we do a training session at a a minimum, at an absolute minimum, 10% of those people are gonna call us for potential business. Out of that 10%, half of them are gonna hire us if if we decide to work with (laughs) them. So in a situation like that, where the other trainers were charging this organization, to come there and teach. We said, just pay for my travel and my hotel room, which they pay for the hotel room anyway. Just pay for our travel and they feed you so you don't have to worry about food. And that's that's what, if we fly there, we don't fly first class, so it's maybe three, $400 to get us there and back home. But they got eight hours worth of training and we are gonna get several hundred thousand dollars worth of business. So when I look at it from that perspective where the other guys are saying, uh, you got to pay me 5,000 to come out there plus room and board and travel. And I'm saying, who's the audience? Who are we speaking to? Because we customize, no, no two training sessions are the same. And they tell me that those, those people that are within our wheelhouse, there's opportunity there. And I know we're going to do a bang up job because even our, our presentations we don't do presentations even when we're asked to we do productions Mm. so and i'm going to get off track a little bit and talk about that because that is really really important to not do a freaking nobody wants to pay to go to an event even if their company's paying and listen to some guy an expert or considered expert talk about their field of expertise to train you and he's standing in front of the podium saying Yeah, and uh, you look at the vehicle, and you look at this part of the vehicle, and you look for this, and then this happens, and this is how you calculate speed and crush rating. Who wants to listen to that crap? Nobody. No one. Where we get up there, we're going to get there an hour ahead of whatever time we're supposed to be there. We're going to get everything set up. We're going to do a sound check. We're going to play music in the background and we customize the music to the organization. We might have heavy metal, we might have rap, we might have country. And when we have the songs on there. We know how long the songs are going to play if we We know people are going to start coming in 30 minutes ahead. We got 30 minutes worth of songs. We know what song is is going to hit at 15 minutes. We know what song is going to hit at five minutes. And we know that so that we can prepare to get ready. When people come in, come in, we're gonna greet every single person that comes in. Hey, where are you from? You know, oh yeah, this restaurant. I've been to that restaurant. So you do that because when you're up there, everybody's nervous when they first start doing a speech or presentation in front of a room full of people, including me. I still get nervous for the first five or 10 minutes until I'm into what I'm talking about. And I, we do that so that they feel comfortable with us. And when I look out into the audience, I see a friendly face, someone that I talked to that was coming in. And that relaxes me even quicker. And so where the rest of them are standing in front of a lectern or a podium, we require a lavalier. We walk around the audience. We get off the stage and we get in there to where our people are. And Japanese have a term for that called gimbutsa gimba. Go to and see where the work is. And mm-hmm. when everyone else is standing in front of the podium, we're walking by, I'm touching people on the shoulder, I'm talking to them face to face. We we help them learn by using anecdotes. Like I have this one anecdote about Big Mama's sweet potato pie and how that relates to not having air in your tire or an improper repair and i know they sound like they don't have anything to do with each other but to this day people people say hey tell the big mama sweet potato pie story so (laughs) and it's funny because white people don't know that big mama is a term of endearment in the black community for your grandmother so i have to explain that to her hey big mama is not an insult to my grandmother dude (laughs) oh man that's hilarious So we get into that audience and I'll get down and look at somebody. And when you're doing a presentation, you need to make eye contact with every single person in that audience on multiple occasions. And they need to feel like you are only talking to them. So when you finish that presentation, they're like, holy cow, man. I mean, if somebody asks a really good question, I'll take off and run around the audience full speed. And I'm like, hey, I just had to blow off some energy because that question was too good. I can't wait to answer that question. And they have the same reaction that you're having now. They're like, wow, I want to hear what he's got to say, man. This dude's insane. So the audience feels that passion as well. And they're like, man, that guy's like the best presenter I've ever seen. And I'm not presenting. I'm having fun. I'm connecting with my audience. I want to connect with them. And I need to be able to see their facial expressions, their body language, because that determines if they're interested in that portion of the presentation that I'm going through. And if their body language and their facial expressions are telling me they are not interested in that, I'm going to move on to the next thing. They're not going to have to ask me. I already can tell they don't have any interest in that. I move on to the next section. So there are a lot of secrets and tips in doing a presentation, but you never, if your presentation starts at 10, you don't show up at five minutes to 10. You don't even show up at 10 minutes to 10. Your tail needs to be there at a minimum 30 minutes before, and you need to greet and thank the people in the audience for paying to come and see you in most cases. Because if I'm doing a keynote, those are not cheap, man. I mean, those are crazy expensive for someone to hire me for 45 minutes. That is a level of dollar bills that most people are like, Are right, is he serious? He gets paid to just talk for 45? That kind of money? Yes, because it's a perceived uh, quality of service that most people don't know they have those skills or haven't met anyone who's willing to bring those skills out. Mm. Man, every time
0: I talk to you, it's always so much value. And oh, I'm mad I have another one starting in five minutes. I definitely gotta have you <laughs> on again, man, because no conversation we ever have goes under an hour. It's always just so It's been, much an fun. Oh, God, yeah. it been an hour. Oh God, it's been an hour. That's what I was. What the crap <laughs> It just be flying by, man, and it's really still so much stuff that I want to dive into. So we'll for sure have to get you back on. One uh parting question. That I want to ask is, so you've been an entrepreneur for years now. And what is one thing that you know now about being an entrepreneur and running a business that had you would have known when you first started, it would have streamlined your process
1: or made it smoother? Listen to my customers and listen to my employees. Period. Cut and dried. Uh, Your customers are your most important asset. And not in the fact that they're purchasing goods and services, but you always, 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 whether you're providing a service like what we do or providing a product, ask your customers every time when you say thank you for purchasing my goods and services or thank you for, for hiring us, at the end, what can, could, can we do or could we have done to make, to make your experience with us better? And nine out of 10 times, they're going to say, oh, no, it was great. I don't know what you could have done. But that one, that one out of 10 is going to say, oh, you know what? If you guys could uh, log in, and that that was actually, we we did that, (laughs) said if you guys could just, we could give you our bank account, and they do this in Europe. They don't do this in the U.S. If we could just give you our bank account, and you could just direct bill us and take the money out, that would be better or if we could just pay you direct, that would be better. And I was like, God, Doug, I can't believe I didn't think of that. What in the world was I thinking? Uh, it's just, uh, and, and and always never, and here's, I'm gonna answer the question twice. Never ever be late and do what you say you're gonna do. So with me, if I, if I know it's gonna take me an hour to, a day to get a report to somebody, I tell them I'll have it to you in three days in case something comes up but they never get it in three days they always get it in one or two and they think wow he said three days and he got it to me in a day so always give yourself that cushion because you don't know what's going to come up i mean somebody could die your car break down the wife gets it you don't know so you need to give yourself that cushion that wind that extra window of time that you know it's not going to take you but the customer is expecting that and they get it before them it's almost like under promising and over delivering. It is a hundred percent under promise and over deliver. So think about whenever you're doing it. If you tell somebody you're gonna be there at ten o'clock, we on TJ time. TJ time is fifteen minutes before whatever time we agreed. Anus in seat. <laughs> mm. So never, never, never do it on time. Always give yourself some, some, some room. Well,
0: I definitely appreciate you for being a rising tide. As always, you know, we have conversations often and you always, like I tell you, every time we get off the phone, it's like, man, my mind just be racing. you always just like, so I appreciate it, man. Um, how can the people find you or, uh, what is your oh. social outlets or if you have a website? Oh, or you man. contact
1: with you? Yeah. Many, many ways. Uh, I am on all social media and, uh, they can email me and my email is really easy. It's the tire guy at yahoo.com and tire spell with a Y. So it's T-H-E-T-Y-R-E-G-U-Y at yahoo.com. And make sure they spell my last name right. Cause it's hard to find me if you don't spell it right. You can just put it, Google me at TJ and then put a space in my last name is tenant. T-E-N-N-E-N-T. And if you can't remember how to spell my last name, you can just Google TJ space Bridgestone or TJ space Firestone. And that'll link you to videos and articles and pictures and more information than you will have time to read. Also, I'm on Facebook at TJ Tennant. I'm on Instagram at TJ no space Tennant. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, YouTube, you name it.
0: All righty. right, I'm definitely gonna oh. put a link uh, to all those different things in the uh,
1: description of the video. One other thing they can I'm going to give them my cell number, they can actually call me. Up. Yeah, I told you ain't nobody else gonna do what I do. Uh, 615-636-8136. <laughs> That's my number 615-615-636-8136. Uh, Anybody watching your video can call me. And if they don't believe me, call me at 1 a.m. See if I'm not already up working. I will probably be already up working. And by the way, one other thing, I'm not the only rising tide, brother. You are too, man. You just don't know it, yet. I'm trying to I'm trying to get
0: to the point where you know I am there. Like, but I appreciate you for helping me become a rising tide, man. Because it's people like you that pour into me that helps me be able to pour into others. So I definitely appreciate you uh for that. And then also for he just gave out his cell phone number, man, which is super, super dope. Uh so I gotta start this next thing, but make sure y'all take advantage of that. He's extremely open, he's extremely transparent, he just gives out the game. I'm talking about, I haven't really come across people that will just give so freely without expecting literally anything in return other than you just to give the game to somebody else. Uh, So really take advantage of him. Hit him up on his social outlets as well. Follow him. He always dropping uh, videos on YouTube. Uh, His Facebook page has also got a whole bunch of different content, LinkedIn as well. Uh, So I appreciate you for being a rising tide brother and you have a blessed day. You too. Thanks, Chris.